Hey everybody, this is Warm Regards, a dialogue between the climate scientists, newsmakers, journalists, and people on the front lines of climate change. I'm Eric Holthouse in St. Paul, Minnesota. This has been quite a month, and uh, unless you're, you know, fully into the, you know, prepping, living off the grid, like eliminating yourself from society, you have seen how much weather we have had um, recently. And, you know, I'm personally taking one on the chin, having having a cold under all of this. Um, we also just moved across the country. Um, but I wanted to talk with one of the people who I've just felt so inspired by their work. Um, in, uh, in Miami, um, meteorologist John Morales has been really a beacon of, of hope to people as these storms have come through. Um, and I had a chance to talk with him earlier today and uh, as just sort of a reflection on on what has been really an, a, a breathtaking amount of of weather and storms. Um, and, um, you know, people like this uh, are the people that uh, that that keep me going and and really inspire us to, to know that there are people out there that care, that are trying to manage all of this. Uh, you know, personally, emotionally, and professionally all at the same time. And and those are the kind of people that, that we like to highlight here on Warm Regards. So uh, without further ado, here is our conversation with John Morales. With us now is John Morales, the chief meteorologist of NBC6 in Miami. So John has had uh, a really busy month, um, like all meteorologists, but but for, for John, this month has been personal. Uh, John was raised in Puerto Rico. He still has family there, and he just completed a relief flight. Um, after covering the landfall of Hurricane Irma in Florida and the landfall of uh, Hurricane Maria in, in Puerto Rico. So this has been, I mean, I would imagine this has been one of the busiest times of your entire career. Is that right, John? No, it's been intense. It really has been. And, uh, you know, this, it all comes on the heels of, I, I had a knee operation on August 31st, and by Labor Day, uh, I remember the uh, we, we were on the heels of Harvey that had struck Texas, and Miami and all of South Florida was extremely alert regarding anything coming from the tropics. Irma was already forming. Irma was building very quickly into a, a record-setting storm, Category 5, winds 185 miles an hour for hours on end. And that Labor Day night, which I worked at NBC6, I left the TV station, and there were lines at midnight uh, out of the gas station at the corner. And I'm saying, man, oh man, uh, Miami is really, really on alert and, and somewhat, you know, borderline hysterical in terms of the possible threat of Hurricane Irma. So that's how it all started. That You were talking six days prior to Irma, while Irma was still in the Caribbean. And uh, keep in mind, I, I, I cover at least through social media, all of these tropical cyclones for Puerto Rico, for uh, the Dominican Republic. I also have a radio station client down in, in, in the British Virgin Islands. So imagine how they got struck by Irma. And I'm dealing with all that. Then it becomes a real threat for Miami. And, uh, uh, you know, as that week progressed, 
the level of coverage at the station transition from, call it hourly break-ins, to wall-to-wall coverage beginning the Thursday before landfall. Keep in mind, landfall was on the Sunday. And, uh, you know, that meant many hours on TV. And when that was over... Maria formed and quickly also ramped up to a Cat 5 in a matter of hours, and that threatened the Caribbean and Puerto Rico. Uh, Bottom line is it's been a very, very intense month. As you know, a a record-setting September, world record uh, when we use that accumulated cyclone energy index as a measurement. Uh, Now the Atlantic holds the world record for the highest ACE of index across any tropical basin anywhere in the world. So that's how intense it was. <laughs> and, and for you to personally, you know, have connections to to uh, two of those three uh, major hurricane landfalls, um, and I'm sure you know people in Texas too. So, um, so this is this is just. Um, I mean, I'm really having trouble still. You know, now it's it's mid October wrapping my head around the fact that this even happened. I mean, these are the sort of hurricanes that we were sort of thinking, um, you know, far off into the the end of the century, you know, climate change is going to make the top end hurricanes worse. That's the latest science. Um, and and it it feels too soon for that to be the dominant factor here. It's probably just a lot of bad luck. But at the same time, we have to sort of ask ourselves what's happening. It, it just feels weird. So it, it's certainly consistent with uh, that uh, forecast for stronger, wetter tropical cyclones. And, uh, but at the same time, it may be too soon to tell. Uh, so while it's consistent with uh, what we might expect from a warming atmosphere and warming oceans... Uh, it, it may be too soon to tell whether this is just bad luck, as uh, you described, or uh, uh, definitely having a direct link to climate change. I will tell you this. I think it's irresponsible to say that there is zero link. Uh, I believe there there is some percentage of link. It's also irresponsible to say that it's 100% caused by climate change. It's somewhere in the middle uh, and definitely consistent with, with you, what you might expect in a warming world. Yeah, and then... Um what was it last week? There was a there was a king tide in Miami that the mayor there said um, was just as bad as a hurricane hitting. You know, in terms of coastal flooding, um, I, I I know that you've been covering those too. Um, can you can you tell us what um, what yeah. that is? Yeah, so the, the, the king tide here in South Florida and it really anywhere where it occurs, it's the highest tide of the year. Uh, the, uh, the tide caused by the proximity of the moon, of course, the typical astronomical factors that, that cause uh, these highest tides of the year. But the problem is that these king tides are becoming deeper and they're becoming more widespread. So whereas Miami Beach, for example, has had a king tide saltwater inundation issue for decades, it's hitting neighborhoods in Miami Beach that were never touched by the saltwater before. And now it's spreading into other neighborhoods in South Florida simply because, well, you know, the sea level is rising. We're getting deeper and deeper water. Sometimes these king tides are accompanied by other meteorological factors which exacerbate the problem. For example, just the one that passed right now, 
um, in in early October, uh, we had an onshore wind flow. Uh, so that drove water towards the coast. And on top of that, sea, uh, sea surface temperatures are well above normal. So just based on local thermal expansion, I'm not talking globally, just at the local level, the water is warmer and it occupies more space. So you, you combine all those factors together, and this particular uh, king tide was very problematic across many communities in South Florida. And unfortunately, the worst one of the year, the king of the king tides, is going to come up with the next full moon in early November. It's going to be interesting to see just how deep uh, that saltwater sunny day inundation is going to be. Yeah, and those are things, um, king tides, that are that are directly linked to climate change because we have, you know, added several inches of, of, uh, of ocean water just in the last, um, few decades. Um, I saw, I was looking at, um, the landfall for, for hurricane Nate, um, in Mississippi, the, since 1980, there's been a rise of eight inches on, in coastal Mississippi. And I know that there are some local, um, local factors that, you know, subsidence and that same sort of thing is happening in, in South Florida. Um, but, but there's a signal there that over time, um, these, these flooding events, coastal flooding events, the, the flooding event uh, in, in relation to hurricanes, this is trending in the wrong direction. Right. And listen, I mean, subsidence is only a problem in a few pockets of South Florida, unlike, you know, coastal Louisiana, where a lot of it is sinking uh, and subsiding. Uh, only Western Miami Beach is, is one area in particular that, that is subsiding because that was never land to begin with. Basically, mm-hmm. they filled it in to be able to develop more uh, apartments and, and, and more homes. And that particular area is sinking very, very slightly. But uh, I tell you what, for the rest of South Florida, it's a coral ridge, a very solid uh, limestone underneath. And uh, that's not sinking. And they're they're flooding, too. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's uh, definitely uh, a result of sea level rise and uh, and the king tide. Yeah, and the fact that we have more people living in harm's way too um, is making these problems worse. So we, we've just had, um, I think we just tied uh, with with uh, with Maria um, tied the number of billion dollar weather disasters. Um, uh, uh, the, 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 the most that the United States has ever had in one year. Um, and we still have, we still have another, uh, two and a half months of the year left. So, um, um, I want to, I want to ask you a little bit about Puerto Rico. Um, you just finished a, a relief flight there. Um, and you were able to see your mom. Um, what was that like? Yeah, I tell you what, I mean, that that was so important and, and so wonderful to be able to see her. Now, that was just kind of a bonus <laughs> that, are, that arose out of the fact that I was flying with Jorge Posada, the great uh, Yankee catcher, and his wife, Laura, and uh, I, they've organized numerous flights uh, to Puerto Rico and back where they bring down supplies Uh, on an empty aircraft in terms of no passengers, only relief supplies, and then they fill the aircraft up on the way back with folks that are in need of medical care or the elderly that are not getting the appropriate treatment in Puerto Rico because of the lack of power across the island. So it's a great mission. Uh, I was uh, glad to cover it for NBC6 and, and and also on social media. 
And the added bonus that, uh, you know, I was able to, to uh, summon my mother down to the airport. And I should, I should briefly tell that story because my mother lives up on the hills about a 30 to 40 minute drive south of San Juan. And there is no way to communicate up there into that area. There are no landlines, no cell phone communication, no internet. There's absolutely nothing. So I, I've I have to send emissaries up from the metropolitan area of San Juan, who I do have communication with, uh, to go up there and send messages or ask her what she needs. And I've asked her numerous times whether she wants to come to Miami and, and, and uh, get away from, from the difficult circumstances down there, and she's refused to come. But at least I got the message to her that I was going to be at the airport. She did dr- drive down there, and I was able to hug her, see how strong she looks. She's 85 years old, by the way, looking strong, looking resilient, looking determined. Um, and, uh, you know, brought her a couple of her requests, uh, <laughs> handed those to her, and uh, and on she goes. So I'm feeling a lot better about, um, you know, how she's dealing with the aftermath down there. Yeah. And what's it like um, in your experience talking with people in Puerto Rico? Um, what has it been like for them right now? Today is 20 days after Hurricane Maria uh, made, made landfall. So there's still 84% of people without power. 47% without phone service, 44% of banks are closed, 36% without running water even 20 days later. And I know that 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 this was such a devastating hurricane, it's going to take a long time to restore those services, but it just feels like there are pockets of desperation still so so much longer after the storm. There are, especially in some of the more rural communities of Puerto Rico, where it's been difficult to access those areas. Uh, remember, uh, just like I said, the story of my mother, there, there is no way to communicate with these folks. And sometimes they're even isolated because their particular neighborhood or barrio, as you would say in Spanish, is, is perhaps across a bridge that no longer exists because of the one in 1,000 year flood that occurred with Maria. Uh, and, and, Sometimes when these folks have special medical needs, you might imagine that, you know, without medicine, without power, it's very, very difficult, particularly for them. I would say as a whole, as a general population, first of all, Puerto Ricans are, 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 tend to be positive people tend to be resilient people, and I think the general population is, is dealing with it as best they can in, under the circumstances that you just described that are very, very difficult. But at the same time, there are a few folks that are definitely in desperate need of help. Water. You know, when only half of the people have potable water, uh, you know, this needs to be delivered and, and provided for them uh, because they're out. E- even, if, even if you followed FEMA guidelines and you were ready for 72 hours without any help, well, it's been way over 72 hours and they're out of water and, and, and some are out of food too. So again, isolated pockets where there is a certain level of desperation within what I believe is a general population that is dealing with this as positively as they possibly possibly can, uh, with resiliency and, and, and trying to get through this very, very difficult circumstance. Um, yeah, and, and the rest of the island is under a boil water advisor. I think that just came up yesterday. Mm. Um, so, so even if you don't, if you, even if you do have running water, you may not have power and you may not have the ability to boil water. It's just, it, you know, th- this is a sort of a cascading, um, set of circumstances that, um, that 
it, for me, it, it's hard to imagine, you know, not having an end in sight for, for, um, to, to, to live in that sort of environment. But, um, I think it was best framed if I might, might, uh, uh throw this in there, uh, by the CBS reporter, David Begnaud, uh, who told Charlie Rose and also uh, CBS this morning, uh, this is the first catastrophe that he's covered where the emergency, the emergency is never ending. You know, hmm. instead of the emergency lasting a day or two and then you deal with the aftermath, this is just an emergency situation that won't end. And that's that's how we framed it for Puerto mm-hmm. Rico. Yeah, we're still in an emergency mode. It, it, it just has to weigh on you um, emotionally and physically and spiritually to go that long under such high stress um, I, I mean, I've, I've done a little bit of reporting on, on the, the aftermath as well. And it just seems like, you know, every morning, um, people wake up and say, what do I need today? What do we need today to get through today? And it's like, should we, should we go, you know, wait in line for, for gas, for our generator? Should we go, um, try to stock up on food for the next week? Um, and there's no, you know, in some cases, there's no way to access their own money. Um, the The economy in some cases has crumbled and in, in that there are not any businesses open employing people that otherwise would be. So it's hard to make money to, to pay for all this. Um, it's um, until there is uh, a little bit of, uh, of reliability um it seems like, you know, neighbors helping neighbors. Um, there's so many inspiring stories that have, have come out um, uh, of Puerto Rico. Um, and I know that, you know, as you said, people are doing the best they can. But, gee, like, <laughs> come on. Like, if this was happening in New Jersey, you know, um, I feel like people, you know, I don't know. I think that that the fact that it's in Puerto Rico and it's a little bit isolated from our everyday experience for the rest of us, um, it's sort of just sort of, um, you know, floated back to the back of the minds of a lot of people already. Well, I mean, so I'll give you I'll give you a good example of that. Uh, You know, even during the course of this interview, we we have yet to mention uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands, the British Virgin Islands, St. Martin, uh, you know, Dominica, Barbuda, uh, all these places that were also absolutely smashed by these major Cat 4 and Cat 5 hurricanes, St. Croix as well. And, uh, I mean, you know, Puerto Rico is still somewhat in the news here in uh, the United States, but those places, you, you rarely hear about them, and they've gone through equal or worse than Puerto Rico mm-hmm. has. So, so definitely this is uh, uh, something not to be forgotten, the fact that there are many, many other populations that were um, struck severely by tropical cyclones in the Atlantic this year. It's just been mm-hmm. a terrible, terrible uh, hurricane season, and I cannot wait for it to end. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just heard the, uh, the prime minister of, of Dominica um, has made a couple of really impassioned speeches. I mean, one at the UN General Assembly in New York, um, basically telling the world that this is our opportunity to, to rebuild in a way that's consistent with what scientists say is going to happen the rest of the century. We need to, we need to do our part, tiny Dominica, um, to reduce our emissions, to make our Island more resilient, to, 
um, to future storms. And we need the, the international community's help to do that. And it's just so, I mean, like you said, um, not even the fact that, that this has happened, but the fact that that it's it seems like um, it's out of um, it's out of our mind um, to some degree, uh, and these these sorts of you know and we yeah you know we're we're focusing this conversation on on hurricanes, but there you know every day around the world there are people that are at the front lines of of climate change and weather extremes that are that are going through. Um, a rebuilding process and trying to focus on the future and say, what can my life be like to, to, to make it, uh, you know, safer for my family and looking forward, how can I have hope that, that the future is going to be better than what it is now? Because that's what everyone deserves. And, and, um, and, you know, the fact that we're talking about this is, is a start. And I think that the more we talk about, um, weather and climate together because it is an interwoven story at this point. Um, yeah, absolutely. That, and, and it's always the most vulnerable communities that are mm-hmm. hit first by, and that are most vulnerable to, to this type of circumstance. So it's, uh, it's definitely a, 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 a world emergency, if you ask me, that's really ramping up in terms of uh, just how many people are being affected by more extreme weather events. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else um, that that you've been had a chance to reflect on in the last several weeks in terms of your own work and and maybe the future and and what um, what what has changed for you I guess in the, in the last few weeks in terms of your outlook? Well, I mean, it, to me, it seems like my career in uh, weather as a professional meteorologist now for over 33 years, uh, I've, it's always been the tropics and subtropics for me from my days at the National Weather Service, starting in San Juan, then in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and then eventually transitioning into television in Miami for the last 26 years, both in Spanish and English. Uh, you know, forecasting the day-to-day partly cloudy with scattered showers is one thing, but when these hurricanes are threatening, that's when my knowledge and experience really comes uh, uh, to the surface. And I, I try to keep people calm. I try to keep people safe. And, um, you know, over the years, I think people have uh, been appreciative of the way that I frame the message just to make sure that they're, uh, that they're exactly that, calm and safe uh, through, through the storm. Uh, I don't think my approach or the way that I deliver information uh, has changed all that much uh, since 25 years ago in terms of the messaging and the way I try to keep people calm and safe. But what has changed is the level of engagement with the public. Whereas in the past, it was traditional media like radio and television. And now it's become social media as well to where I'm serving thousands and thousands of people by just interacting with just one individual. I'll have one individual ask me a question. When I answer the question on social media, Thousands of people read the answer, and maybe their question is being answered too. Mm-hmm. I've, I've really embraced that. I think uh, social media is is uh, has many positives. I know it has a lot of negatives too, uh, but it has many positives because the, the once you say something, it's not gone forever like it would be on TV and radio unless you happen to be recording it. It stays there for the record, for people to make reference to whatever you post in on social media. Mm-hmm. They can go back and look at that. Uh, so so I'm 
really embracing that type of communication, I think it really serves uh, uh, folks, even when their power is out, continues to serve them. Uh, so that's that's the one big change as a as a science communicator that I've really embraced, and I think it's a positive thing going forward. Yeah, and your Twitter feed during these hurricanes was just amazing in the sense of, like you said, the personal attention that you were able to give to almost everyone that asked a question. It, it was just breathtaking to watch that um, that you were so you know devoted to people's concerns and you know allaying their fears and and you know routing them in the right direction for information and and um i know that you got to throw the the first pitch at the um at the marlins one of the last marlins games of the season um (laughs) i mean it it seems like you've you know rightly the community has recognized you for your work and um and that's a you know that's a great thing oh Uh, it's been uh, the 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 gratitude that i felt the love that i felt from the people has been tremendous um it's uh it's i haven't felt like this since hurricane andrew in 1992 and back then it was limited again to traditional media and just folks that spoke Spanish, because back then I was working for Univision. Now it's it's just everybody. I mean, uh, English speakers, bilinguals, even Spanish speakers who just you know watch me and, and look at my body language and, and hear my tone of voice, and they can tell if they need to be worried or not. Just because, not be, not because I have any magic in me. Just because I'm old and people have known me for a long time, <laughs> they know they know what my demeanor is like and what I normally would be like if I was mm-hmm. delivering a, 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 a run of the mill hurricane versus one. That, that you really need to be concerned about. Mm-hmm. Um, so so uh, it, it's been fantastic. I mean, I've had that uh, first pitch. I've, I've, there was a special feature at the uh, opening night for the Florida Panthers, the local NHL team as well. Uh, many letters and uh, lots of messages on social media. It's, it's been really special. Uh, all this mixed at the same time with you know my trips to the different uh, 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 relief efforts uh, going on for Florida and for Puerto Rico. Uh, that I try to to bring attention to through social media as well, or maybe through TV, uh, so, pe- so that people are aware of what's going on and can contribute to that cause uh, mm. uh, too. So it's it's been a whirlwind of a, a few weeks. Uh, hopefully things will calm down soon. Um, with only uh, about a month and a half left in hurricane season, we hope things start winding down. Although October mm-hmm. is always a, a concerning month, especially for the for the state of Florida. So we'll be watchful mm-hmm. for the rest of this month. Okay. Good work, uh, John. And thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that's our show for this week. If you like what we're doing here, please tell a friend. And as always, feel free to hit us up with your thoughts, future guests, show ideas, or, you know, pretty much anything. Our email address is ourwarmregards at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at ourwarmregards. For Jacqueline and Andy and John Morales, our guests this week, uh, producers Eric Mack and Jesse Ann Baines, I am Eric Holthouse. Thanks for listening, everybody. Mm-hmm.